This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and this coming Sunday right here on Prairie Public at 5 o'clock Central is the upcoming episode of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. And joining me now is the host of that show, a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota, Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He joins us from his seat high in the ivory tower <laughs> for <laughs> A philosophical discussion. Uh, it's it's going to be one of those, is it, Lashley? <laughs> About what it means to be a student of philosophy. So I will start with why is it funny that I said you sit atop a throne of in the ivory tower? Well, first of all, the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, which is the parent organization of Y Radio, uh, our motto is because there is no ivory tower. And the idea behind it is my conviction and the thing that drives me to do the show, to do this show, to do the Institute, is that I believe everyone is doing philosophy all the time. They just don't necessarily know the word philosophy and they don't know that they're doing it. And so our goal is to get off the campus, to get out of that ivory tower, to accept the fact that the borders between a college and the rest of the world are permeable and that everyone is part of the same conversation. Well, when you say something like doing philosophy, but they don't know the word, they don't realize that that's what they're doing. You are, of course, a professor of philosophy. You have worked with hundreds, perhaps thousands of students uh, over your tenure at UND. What does it mean to do philosophy? Think about the questions you ask yourself every day. You get extra change at the supermarket and you ask yourself, do I give the money back? Would it be different if the cashier was being charged for it than if the company was being charged for it? What if you find a wallet on the street? Do you give that back? But also questions about knowledge. You see someone down the street, you're sure it's a friend of yours. You run up to them, tap them on the shoulder, and it's someone else. What went Ooh, wrong? Oh, I did that once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all, we all have. Is there a God is a philosophical question. How does God want you to live your life is a philosophical question. How do you raise your kids? What counts as a good education? Which candidate should you vote for and why? These are all at root philosophical questions because they're about the way that we understand reality and the way that we make decisions given that reality. As human beings, we're agents. We have a lot of responsibility to make choices. And that those choices, again, range from morality to the question of what's real. And so we have to be philosophers because we have to choose for ourselves how we're going to act. What is the difference, Jack, between being a philosopher and being in a constant state of existential dread? <laughs> well, people in existential dread are happier than philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> um, being a philosopher is a professional distinction. It's like the difference between being an attorney and a lawyer. A lawyer is someone who got a degree. An attorney is someone who is practicing law. Being a philosopher is someone who makes a living or their fundamental commitment is to philosophy. So I have the same advantage, say, of a professional athlete. You know, we all play basketball, we all play frisbee, we all play these different games, but a professional athlete, they have coaches, they have the newest technology, they have sponsors, they have the time and the energy to improve and critique their own performances. As a professional philosopher, this is what I have. I have an office, I have books, I have students, I have journal papers that I write, I have oversight. I have to meet a certain standard at work. I am a professional engaged in thinking and teaching these things. But the amateur basketball player just finds a, a pickup game, grabs their ball, aims for the hoop. The amateur philosopher reads or thinks about the things they're interested in, makes decisions, and often doesn't even have the chance to talk to anyone else about it. They're just reflecting on it on their own. And so part of what Why Radio is supposed to do is provide an interlocutor for that, someone else to talk to about the philosophical thoughts and questions mm -hmm. that people have when they don't have anyone else to talk to about it. 
Well, Jack, you are the host of Live Philosophical Discussions about Everyday Life, and the upcoming episode airs this Sunday at 5 o'clock Central. This episode, you have four of your own students in this conversation, both uh, current and former students. Why did you want to talk to students about what it is to be a student of philosophy? And presumably you can just give them an F for not attending. <laughs> you, yeah, I have less power than even that. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is a very special episode to me because these are four students who I am just incredibly proud of, who I've been very, very lucky to have in my classes. And, of course, they represent many, many other students who I feel the same way about. The, the, the decision to do it was an accident of convenience and then this insight that I had an accident of convenience was I thought we were going to do a different show and the guest had to had to reschedule. Mm. <laughs> so I had to think about what could I get quickly? And then I realized that there is this problem. And the problem is that students don't get to speak for themselves, right? There are books about students, their studies. We reflect on our student life and talk about what it was like to be in college. But by that time, those emotions, that experience, the detail, the anxiety of learning, the excitement of doing new things, all of that has gone the wayside. We don't remember what it was like to be 19 years old. And what I wanted to do was get these students in a room to talk about being philosophy students while they're still experiencing it. So there is an archive of what they think and why they think it while they're thinking it. And mm. so we can use this not just as a tool to get other people interested in philosophy, not just as long-term listeners of why getting an insight into my life that they wouldn't otherwise have gotten and, and, and giving it a glimpse of me as a teacher, but also giving voice to these young people who are usually dismissed because college students are either too busy to talk about being a student or getting a hard time because they're out drinking and, and letting off some steam. Hmm. Well, I will say I listened to the episode and each of these students far more articulate than I was <laughs> at 18 and, and arguably still <laughs> is true. Um, is that an accurate sampling of philosophy students? I think it is. You know, there the the four students, one is a first year student in her second semester. She's from East Grand Forks, that's Madeline Lee. One is a student who is going to graduate in the end of the fall. That's Sarah. She's uh, Sarah Rash. She's from Hibbing, Minnesota. Teresa is Azur is uh, from Turtle Mountain uh, Reservation, and she's graduating in six weeks uh, and hoping to go to law school eventually. And then Sam, Samuel Amandalar, he's uh, from uh, Red Wing, Minnesota, and he is just finishing up his master's in English and is waiting to hear about his uh, getting into the PhD program. And so I tried to get four different people from very different periods in their college career and very different experiences. They're all regional, so they speak to the regional experience. And they all care about different things in philosophy. They are a particularly articulate group. In part, I know how to talk to them. All of them have been in multiple um, of my classes, and some of them have been in quite a few of my classes. But it is my experience that when the right scene is set up right in the right context in the right circumstance with the right support und students can be quite impressive and quite articulate i have always said that if one was going to stand out if i'm being honest it would have been maddie as a first year student and the reason why i say that is many of our students come from very small towns they haven't encountered a lot of difference. They, ha they, they don't have a very cosmopolitan worldview. Therese talks about this coming out of Turtle Mountain. And 
they come to UND and UND is overwhelming and it's huge to them. Sure, it's not Arizona State or, or, or Michigan State with 50, 60,000 people, but still, you come from these small towns, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. And they seem sheltered and they seem shy and they seem reluctant. But by the time you get to your junior year, I would take my UND students and put them against any other students I've ever had. I honestly feel that if you're the kind of student that gets an A at UND, you get an A at Harvard. If you're the kind of student that get a C at UND, you get a C at Harvard. Because hmm. what the university does well is cater to the student's potential. And there are going to be students that are too nervous to talk on the radio. There are going to be students who aren't quite as articulate as other students. And those students may excel at writing or they may excel at after the fact reflection. But in general, I have found that if you are supportive and if you protect them in a certain way, that they will exceed all of the expectations in the best way. You're listening to philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is the host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. The upcoming episode is this Sunday at 5 p.m. Central, and there is always a longer podcast version. Jack, you mentioned that one of the students is hoping to go on to law school. One is getting a master's degree in English. I think you said one is pursuing uh, nursing. Very different fields of study. Talk about how having a background in philosophy can impact different courses of study. Well, we, we actually didn't have uh, – none of those four are interested in nursing, but we did talk about nursing during the show because nursing students have – a particularly difficult time in intra philosophy classes. They they like answers. They want to know exactly how to do things. They want to know. Well, their job does uh, rely on that. Oh, absolutely right, and it's perfectly understandable. This this is a characteristic that you want in a nursing student, right? Mm -hmm. You want exactness. You My want thyroid is right here, and this is exactly what it does. right. But. You also want a nursing student who can think out of the box when necessary. Mm -hmm. If there is a change in protocol, learn how to follow that protocol. If there is a diagnosis, and I know that nurses aren't on the, I guess nurses are the front line of diagnosis, but they don't make the final diagnosis. But still, if they want to talk to doctors, if they see a doctor doing something questionable, if there is an ethical issue at the hospital, you want nurses to be able to do this. And this is what philosophy does for every discipline. And it doesn't matter if it's something humanities based, like being a writer or something very, very technical like being a data scientist. Philosophy allows people to communicate abstract ideas, to look at the pieces and how they relate to the whole and be enough of a nonconformist that they have the insight to question things in order to help progress the discussion and also challenge the discussion when it's going in a different way. Every single discipline has a philosophy of. There is a philosophy of bridge building. There is a philosophy of public radio. There is a philosophy of baseball, right? And what a philosopher does is step outside the assumptions that people make every day and ask us to articulate the things that we don't necessarily talk about every day. So let me give you an example. There is a debate, and I may have talked about this on Main Street before, but, but there's a debate in professional baseball between the American League and the National League. The American League allows for designated hitters, which means that when the pitcher comes to bat, uh, someone else bats for them. This protects the pitcher from being injured, and it also allows the pitcher to focus on one skill. The National League doesn't allow the designated hitter. Every player has to be able to do everything. So there is a philosophy debate at the heart of this, which is what is a good baseball player? Is a good baseball player a specialist who does one thing better than anything else? 
or is a, is a good baseball player a generalist who does everything that they need to do good enough to be on a professional team? Now, you can take this model and you can apply it to every kind of business. Do you want your customer service agent to also be able to run the finance software? If, you know, the local airport, the Grand Forks airport, by me, the people who check you in are also the people who help uh, direct the planes and load the luggage and do all of these sorts of things because it's a small airport. And so the specialists that would work in the Minneapolis airport would be lost in the Grand Forks airport. You can take this basic question of specialized versus general and apply it in all circumstances. And so Philosophy as a general education requirement allows people to develop these skills, and then the more they're interested in the subject, the more advanced they get, and then they can ask more specific questions like, what does justice mean, and how do we apply justice to the workplace? What does it mean, again, to be real, and, and is a corporation a real person, or is artificial intelligence uh, the same as a brain, or how much do we have to suspend disbelief if we're watching a science fiction film? Can we just say, oh, this is fantasy and we don't have to worry about it? Or do we have to take moral lessons and have characters act in a certain way to teach lessons, right? One of the great science fiction series, Star Trek, was entirely about questioning moral norms. They had gender fluidity before anyone else on television. They had race-blind societies uh, before anyone else on television. And that's because Star Trek is, at its heart, a philosophical discussion about the things we take for granted in society. I've often thought that I didn't really learn any one specific thing in college, but rather more an approach. How to critically think. This is the first time you didn't just have to memorize enough to pass a test. How do you teach someone how to think? Besides watching all the Rocky movies, uh, you can elaborate <laughs> on, on, on why you think that. Well, okay. So I'll talk about that first. <laughs> I believe that there is no real good pop culture model of what education looks like. I think we have pictures of libraries and I think we have pictures of people, you know, over caffeinating themselves for tests, but we don't really have any good conception of what it means to go through an education. What we do have is the image of learning in sports films, in particular, the Rocky films. What happens in the Rocky films? Rocky knows how to do something, but he doesn't know how to do it very well. So he gets a trainer, and the trainer teaches him all of these skills that he has to practice in order to put it all together to get better. And we watch him get better. We watch him not be able to run far at first, but then eventually running up the steps. We watch him trying to punch the speed bag uh, and missing, but then eventually hitting the speed bag. We watch him in the first movie, spoilers here, uh, tying with Apollo Creed, and in the second movie, winning against Apollo Creed. And with that music, that famous gonna fly now theme what gonna fly now actually means is i am going to learn how to do this better than anyone else and so we don't have this vision of starting i'll use a word that is loaded but uh i don't mean it that way starting ignorant and leaving full of knowledge and wisdom now this is really important because students regularly come up to me in the beginning of the semester and say, I'm scared. I don't know how to do this. I've never taken a philosophy class before. And my response is always, you're not supposed to know how to do this. If you knew how to do this, you wouldn't have to take the class. That's the purpose, to learn how to do this. I have students who are going to law school uh, next year that I've written recommendations for, and they ask me, the internet is full of advice. You should take this course before <laughs> the summer before uh, law school. You should learn to do these things. And my response is, no, you shouldn't. The purpose of law school is to teach you how to be a lawyer. You don't have to go to school to learn to go to law school. You did that already. It's called undergraduate. Because we don't have any models of what education looks like, we are full of insecurity. 
Let me give you just one other example. One of the things I, I say to my students when I want to tease them is that I know everything that's going on in the classroom. I can tell when someone's hungover. I can tell when someone's romantically interested in someone else. I can tell when someone's uh, distracted and hasn't done the work. The, ironically, the one thing I can't tell is whether they understand. Why? Mm. Because what students have been taught to do for their entire school career is hide the fact that they don't understand. <laughs> they, 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 they think that if the teacher sees that they're not following it, they're going to get bad grades or they're going to get in trouble. Instead of recognizing that raising your hand and saying, I, I, I'm not really getting this. Could you explain this in a different way? Counts as participation and makes teachers, most teachers anyway, really, really happy mm -hmm. because it gives us direction. And so the irony mm -hmm. of being a teacher is that the one thing that we do need to know is the one thing that is the hardest for us to figure out. Mm -hmm. All of that is to say that what philosophy does and what education does is break down education, not just into facts, which are important if you're taking anatomy or if you're taking uh, pharmacology, but we're also breaking them down into skills, skills like how to think critically, how to communicate abstract ideas, how to listen, how to, and this came up in, in the conversation during the show, how to read and hear something new in order to understand it before you criticize it. Mm -hmm. We are all, especially now in the United States, we read something or we hear something speak and we're, and we're listening to disagree. We're listening to say, no, no, that's not right. You don't agree with me. That's not my position. Be quiet, blah, blah, blah. And the trick to being a good student is to encounter something new and to absorb it and to try to understand it and then apply that critical voice. So there is the, the internal criticism that says, here is how you learn. Here are the things that you need to do in order to take in this information. Here are the things that you need to challenge in order to understand. But then there's the, do I agree or disagree? How does this fit into my overall worldview? When will this be useful, right? We, you always hear <laughs> kids in high school complaining, I'm I'll never, never going to use algebra, right? right? And you do all the time. You use advanced math all of the time. And they don't know that. And I think a lot of people don't know that because they don't call it advanced math. They just call it figuring out how to measure the piece of wood or figuring out what the tip is or trying to calculate how long it's going to take you to get from Grand Forks to Bismarck. Someone a long time ago quoted someone, and I don't know who the original uh, person was who said this to me, and it stuck with me. It's it's. Education is, what, is what's left after they've forgotten everything you've told them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love that because yeah. my students are in five years. My students are not going to remember which one was Plato, mm -hmm. which one was Spinoza, which one was John Rawls. They're not going to remember that. But they are going to remember that freedom has multiple definitions and, and, and this is one kind of freedom and this is another kind of freedom. Or... Uh, I might not know the name of the fallacy that this politician just said out loud, but I can see the error in the reasoning and I can know not to be persuaded by it. Here's another way of putting this. The people on Jeopardy are not educated. They're not smart. What they are is really, really good at memorization. They're really good at trivia. Education is not knowing facts. Education is knowing how facts fit together and how to make judgments and determinations about your life and your own world based on those facts. So all those people who answer all those questions on Jeopardy, they may have memorized the, you know, the big book of Jeopardy questions, but it doesn't mean they understand how the circulatory system works or the nuances of the nuclear regulatory treaty between NATO and Iran. Those are not facts. Those are concepts. They're uh, integrated ways of, of, of thinking about the world. They're based on ideology and perspective and experience and personal judgment. That's what education is. Well, 
I'm not sure how I should feel about being a perennial second place Jeopardy finisher. (laughs) (laughs) You're smarter than that. That's how you should feel. It doesn't mean you're not smart. It just means you're not good at memorizing. I'm terrible at memorizing. I'm actually really good, but only for a very short period of time. Just long enough to take that test. (laughs) Well, there you go. We are visiting today with a philosopher, Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. We will be back with more after this news. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. A House committee is looking at a proposed state constitutional amendment that would change the term limit measure voters passed in November. The initiated measure limits legislators to two four-year terms in each House and also limits the governor to two terms. Fargo Republican Representative Jim Casper wants to change that so that legislators and every elected executive branch office holder would serve 12 years. Casper told the House Industry, Business and Labor Committee. Right now, we have what, upwards of uh, 35 freshmen in the House and the Senate, and some of them are very young. As you know, we have a member in the, in the uh, House chamber that's 18 years old. Under the current statute, that young man would be age 26 and would be term-limited for the rest of his life in the House. To me, that's unconscionable. The leader of the term limit initiative, Jared Hendricks of Minot, told the committee Casper's proposal does not meet constitutional muster. He says he understands that the legislature can propose changes to an initiated measure if it gets a two-thirds vote in the House and Senate and is then taken to the voters. But he says for term limits, that's not allowed. Because of the new article of the Constitution, Article 15, Section 4, states that the legislative, legislative assembly shall not have the authority to propose an amendment to this Constitution to alter or repeal the term limitations established in Section 1 of this article. So the authority to propose an amendment to this Constitution remains with the people. So the key word here is propose. The legislature is prohibited from the act of even proposing it. Earlier in his testimony, Casper said he would welcome a legal challenge being brought to the North Dakota Supreme Court. XL Energy will be able to offer large customers lower electric rates under a new electric rider approved by the North Dakota Public Service Commission. PSC members say it will help XL attract and retain large users, especially those who might have another choice for a power provider. Here's Commissioner Sherry Haugen-Hoffert. The rates set using would be offered to any existing customers with a minimum load of 2 megawatts. And then any new customers, 10 megawatts. And then the rates would be effective for at least one year and no longer than five. And in order um, to be eligible for this, um, it has to come before the commission for approval. And a Senate Human Services Committee held a hearing on a bill that would prevent higher education institutions from requiring or promoting COVID-19 vaccinations. Representative Jeff Hoverson of Minot says he's heard from many citizens who had adverse effects from the COVID vaccines. He says House Bill 1200 would give students the freedom to choose whether or not they want to take the risks that come with the vaccination. Katie Fitzsimmons is Director of Student Affairs for the North Dakota University System. She says she's concerned about the effect the bill would have on relationships between the universities and the national institutions which require the vaccine. Other opponents say the bill's restrictions on promoting the vaccine is a restriction on free speech. Hoverson is willing to amend the bill in that regard. The committee will work on amendments to that bill. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. Support for Prey Public is provided by Touchmark at Harwood Groves Fargo and on West Century in Bismarck. Touchmark offers maintenance-free living so residents have more time to enjoy what they love. Fresh prepared meals, health and fitness club, and a full calendar of events with friends nearby. Learn more at touchmark.com. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg in conversation today with philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota and the host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. That episode is coming up this Sunday at 5 p.m. Central. Jack, before the news, we were talking about learning and the difference between memorizing and applying that knowledge. I was always an excellent test taker because I could uh, memorize very quickly. Um, But oftentimes, I will have no memory of having ever learned that. So I guess, did I even learn that? And, And what maybe are some differences in assessing our ability to learn for example, the difference between a test and a paper. 
those are really important distinctions. And philosophers have been trying to articulate what it means to learn and know for uh, its entire existence. But that experience of forgetting the test information is so common. And it's because tests are designed to have you know the answer the moment you're given the test. The difference between a test and a paper is as follows. You sit down, you read a test question, you're supposed to know the answer, you write it, you move past the next question, and you just go on to the next thing. So you're reading it, having an intuition, writing it, forgetting it, reading it, having an intuition, writing it, forgetting it. That's all a test is. A paper, you are not supposed to know the answer until you're done writing the paper. So often, and every student has had this experience, they'll read the paper prompt, the question that they're supposed to answer, and they'll be like, I have no idea how to answer this. This is insane. I'm incredibly stressed out. So then they sit down at the computer and they start to work it out. And they start with an idea dump and they start writing sort of nonsensey stuff. And a good uh, student is going to go back and edit and revise and move paragraphs around because you aren't supposed to know the answer until you're done. A paper is the process of figuring out an answer. And once you figure out an answer, it's there in your head conceptually for the rest of your life. I, I'm a terrible test taker. I have test taking anxiety. I still have test taking anxiety. The last test I took, which was probably about seven years ago for my motorcycle license, uh, I kept forgetting the instructions and like was going around the wrong lines and things like that. I was mm. I was riding the, the motorcycle that was a scooter, 150 cc scooter. But but I was I was riding that perfectly fine. But I couldn't remember the instructions. So I failed the exam the first time. I just am a bad test taker. But if you give me an idea, I can almost immediately imagine all of the different lines of thought that could come out of that idea and pull those threads forever if I had to. That's a different kind of knowledge. So what we want to do in school is assess the knowledge that is relevant to the discipline. Again, I mentioned anatomy before. One of the reasons why doctors work such weird hours during their residencies, why they're supposed to be so tired, is because the things that they have to have memorized, the things that they have to know, they always have to be there. And so they have to be able to function in emergencies it, when they're exhausted, when they're, you know, terrified or covered in adrenaline or where they have three or four patients at the same time because there's been a horrible accident, doctors have to be able to do that. So the memorization process that they go through isn't just having a, a test. It's over and over and over again, recalling the information so that it's there when they need it. Someone who makes more large-scale decisions, what they have to have is global knowledge. They have to see how things fit together. They have to be able to, again, think out of the box. And so what we try to do is we try to match our assessment to how the discipline operates. An engineering student is going to have different kind of assessment than a poetry student. A um, chemistry student is going to have a different kind of assessment than an aviation student. It's all very, very different. Philosophy is a way of looking at the world because it's a way of questioning and and understanding assumptions and making judgments and, and having a kind of wisdom. But it's also a discipline in that there are particular philosophers you have to learn and there are questions that you have to ask and you have to apply those things to uh, – other fields of study. So philosophy of science, one of the things that you discover in college when you start doing philosophy of science is that the scientific method that they teach you in high school and middle school is completely ludicrous. That is not in any way how science works. And there are lots of reasons for that from the fact that human beings don't have certain knowledge to the fact that you have to have complicated verification systems. So let me just give you an example. You're following the scientific method. Right, which when we learn in school is you uh, f form a hypothesis, you make observations, you test the hypothesis, and you adjust the hypothesis accordingly, and then make a new a new 
claim or a new hypothesis. So let's say I hypothesize that the sun goes around the earth. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stand in one place and I'm going to watch the sun and I'm going to go watch it go up the east and down the west. And then I'm going to time in my head how long it takes for the sun to go around the earth. So I'm going to I'm going to look down in the west side where the sun would be. I'm going to start looking at my feet, my ankles. I'm going to keep moving my head. I'm going to get from my left knee to my right knee. I'm going to start moving my head up until I get to the horizon. And there's the sun again. And now it's going up the east and go to the west. The sun goes around the earth. I proved it, right? <laughs> now, that's the scientific method that they teach you in school. What, of course, they're hinting at is that what science is is 150 million of those put together in a coherent system. And that's what a theory is, right? When you, when you have these political arguments where someone says, oh, evolution is just a theory, it's just a matter of opinion, that's not what a scientific theory is. A scientific theory is a description of a system that shows how all of the pieces fit together. That's what a scientific theory is. So we know that the Earth goes around the sun because not only have we had the tested hypothesis of, of watching the sun rise and fall, but we've also seen Jupiter. We've also seen the moon. We've had satellites go on. We have math. We have all, do the, all these things so we can piece together all of this science. And one of the great differences between philosophy and other disciplines is if you are in any of the hard sciences and math and, and, and these technical subjects, it all has to be compatible. The physics class has to be 100% compatible with the chemistry class, which has to be 100% compatible with the metallurgy class, which has to be 100% compatible with the engineering class. Because if you want to build a bridge, all of that stuff has to fit together. But philosophy classes are not compatible. I teach... 10 different philosophers in an introductory to philosophy class. The first one I teach, I teach as if that philosopher is right. The next class, I teach the next philosopher who disagreed with the first one. So that philosopher is saying why the first one is wrong. Then I teach the third one who's saying why the second and the first one is wrong. And then I teach the fourth one who's teaching why the third and the second one and the first one are wrong. And so philosophy, more than any other discipline, is about giving you choices that you make on your own. And that is why people have their own opinions about religion or, or their own sense of, of what political points are important or why a suspension bridge may be better than another kind of bridge because you have options. And so philosophy as a mindset is recognizing that there is all this choice that you make as an individual. Philosophy as a discipline is learning the skills and the people and the texts that help you enter into that mindset. Giving people choices, though, that's a really interesting uh, thread to pull on because I'm thinking of an appearance that you had uh, on a show that was produced in Minot called uh, Goodnight Live. And you were on as a guest and you played a segment called Philosopher, Hitler, or Homer where you were read <laughs> quotes and you were supposed to say, is this is Homer Simpson, the fictional character from the wildly popular television show, if it was Adolf Hitler or if it was some philosopher. And um, – you routinely took humiliated Hitler's myself <laughs> quotes and, and said, "Oh, that's got to be a philosopher." He had a way of speaking uh, that would have passed, um, for want of a better term, a sort of philosophical mindset. And you mentioned uh, near the top of this show that every discipline has a philosophical approach, and there has been a philosophical approach, for example, to promote eugenics, of not allowing certain people to pass on genes. The powers that be decided you don't have the right genes to, to live and to, to pass this on. Uh, there has been philosophy that has, well, let's go back to Hitler, justified in, in his mind genocide. How do you teach a philosophy that you personally feel is morally wrong? So first of all, Goodnight Live was just a hoot, and everyone should find a way to watch it. They, the video is actually on Facebook, and I'm going to ask them if I can use it in my YouTube account to get it a little more widely distributed because it's really fun, and they're such great people, and I recommend everybody 
lookout for 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 Good Night Live. Why not? Now, one of the things that people who don't teach don't understand is that we constantly teach things we don't agree with. Our job is not to indoctrinate. Our job is to present information. And our job is to help the students understand those information, that information, know wh- whether to apply it. So I constantly teach things I don't approve of. Plato, the greatest philosopher of all time, uh, you can interpret him as a complete and utter, utter fascist. It's a simplistic interpretation, but it is an interpretation that people have held continuously. That doesn't mean I'm not going to teach Plato. Most of the philosophers I teach are as I say in the introduction to the show, the proverbial dead white men. They had slaves. They wrote horrible things about women. They wrote horrible things about Jews. They said awful things about homosexuality. They said awful things about democracy, right? So all of these people have said things and done things that I don't agree with. My basic approach to teaching is as follows. If it's an idea that students are not familiar with, I try to get them to understand it and see why someone would agree with it. If it's an idea that they're very familiar with, it, with, I try to get them to see what's problematic with it and why someone might disagree, right? And so that is the philosophical mindset. The philosophical mindset is looking at an ideology, a philosophy, uh, an opinion, a way of life, a claim, and being able to see why someone might think it works and see why someone might think it doesn't work. And so if there's something super familiar, like when I talk about, I have a philosophy education class. When I talk about middle school and elementary school education and high school and college, (laughs) I am very critical. And I'm very critical because these students have been students their entire life. And they only know the education system that they're in. But if I were to talk about uh, a different country's education system, or if I were to talk about, say, Hinduism, which most of my students are not Hindu, I would present those things in a much more appealing manner. Because the goal is to get them to jump back and forth and to teach them how to do that on their own, to take anything and see the pros and the cons so that they can make choices for themselves. Jack, lawyers spend a great deal of uh, their time and mental energy trying to either go first, present their information first to the jury, or to be the second in the closing arguments. And the thought being here that people either tend to believe what they heard first or what they heard last. Does that happen in a classroom? I actually don't think so. Certainly students will remember more recent things better for assessment. But there's so much information that's given during any class that no student is going to get all of it, and they're going to remember certain things better than others because of their experiences and their personalities and things like that. Now, one of the things that makes a lawyer different than a philosopher, especially in our system, which is what's called the common law system, is that our system does not seek truth. Our system is a procedural justice system, which means that that the goal of the system is to follow the process appropriately and to make sure that everyone gets treated the same way. And if that happens, then the result is considered just. And if it doesn't happen, the result is considered unjust. So let's take the the, um, O.J. Simpson case for an example. Everyone knows that O.J. Simpson killed his wife. There's no question that O.J. Simpson killed his wife. And I think most people at the time knew that O.J. Simpson killed his wife. But the first rule of a procedural justice is that that the police have to follow the rules that they that have been laid out for them. So they had to read him his rights. They had to treat him a certain way. They had to uh, have a chain of evidence that they could that they could recognize. And the police didn't do that. They messed everything up and they weren't trustworthy anymore. Also, the second rule that in the theory of procedural justice, uh, people have to treat everyone the same. Well, the L.A. police were notorious for treating African-Americans fundamentally different than white Americans. Worse, 
and uh, they planted evidence for people and they did all these horrible things. And so when the question went before the jury, what the defense team was able to do was say, since they didn't follow the process and since he wasn't treated the same way, you can't trust them and therefore you cannot find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And in that sense, even though he killed his wife, the judgment was correct. The judgment was the system was not trustworthy enough for us to make a definitive conclusion. Now, the difference between law and philosophy is that law is strategic in that way. And philosophy, and this sounds very romantic, philosophy aims for truth. And so the strategic nature of philosophy is about getting to the truth in a way that a lawyer doesn't. And so what a philosopher is going to do is look at our legal system as a whole, this common law system, and first ask, does this procedural justice approach work. Maybe we should have a system that aims for truth. Maybe we shouldn't. What does it mean to treat people equally? One of the things that I say over and over to my students is treating people equally is not the same thing as treating people identically. And the example I give is everyone has the right to access public restrooms, but some people are in wheelchairs and some people are not. Some people need caregivers and some people are not. So what do we do? We have a few stalls that are small and one stall that is big so that the person who needs more space because of their wheelchair, because of their crutches, because of their caregiver gets more space. Are we treating them equally? We are because they each have an equal chance to go to the bathroom. Are we treating them identically? No. The person who has special needs has more toilet real estate, right? They They've got a bigger house, so to speak. A philosopher looks at these things and asks, what does justice mean? What does equality mean? What does freedom mean? A lawyer does not. A lawyer asks, what does the law mean? How does the judge interpret this? What's the best strategy for convincing a jury or a judge that you are the winner, that you are the one that makes the best case? That is one of the reasons why philosophers make the best lawyers, because philosophers are able to look at arguments and, 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 and cut them up into pieces and see what's wrong and what's right. It's why philosophy majors have the highest grades on the LSATs and have the highest admission rate in law school, because philosophy is the best preparation for law school, even though the task of law school is fundamentally different because it's looking – to 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 follow this particular procedure as opposed to find out what the absolute truth is. Well, Jack, you have spent a career uh, trying to convince people to be more philosophical, running websites like philosophyisagreatmajor.com. You can also find out more at jackrussellweinstein.com or learn about the Institute for Philosophy in Public Life. Jack Russell Weinstein is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota, and he is the host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life, the upcoming episode episode this Sunday at 5 o'clock Central focuses on four students who are talking about what it's like to be a philosophy student. Jack, thanks as always for your time today. It is my pleasure. And I just want to say to the listeners, if you only got 10% of what I said, because I said a lot in this discussion, that's normal. No one expects everyone to understand everything all at once. You get pieces, you think about them, you put it together, and that's what makes the human experience so wonderful. We're constantly learning, and we're constantly going back to old things to learn more from what we missed before. So, Ashley, thanks, as always, for the opportunity. Dakota Datebook is next. Support for Brave Public is provided by Basin Electric Power Cooperative, a consumer-owned generation and transmission cooperative and owner of a large coal-based carbon capture project in Beulah, North Dakota, with over 35 million metric tons of CO2 captured. This is Dakota Datebook for March 8th. The winter of 1887-1888 marked the end of the Little Ice Age, an unbroken six-year stretch that featured abnormally cold weather. The Little Ice Age seemed determined to go out with a bang. 
The year began with a severe blizzard that affected the Great Plains from the Canadian border to Texas. On January 12th, an extremely cold storm hit. As many as 300 people died. It is still considered the worst storm in North Dakota history. But winter wasn't ready to call it quits. On this date in 1888, North Dakotans were digging out from yet another storm. While it wasn't a blizzard, it caused plenty of aggravation and inconvenience. The wind was called hurricane strength, and although that may have been an exaggeration, traffic was snarled and trains were delayed. One train arrived at a station with the glass in every window blown out. A train due at 10.30 at night finally arrived in Jamestown at 9 o'clock the next morning. An eastbound train and a westbound train were both stuck in the snow. Crews of snow shovelers were being organized to dig the trains out. The severe winter weather was not confined to the west. The east was also hit with a major blizzard that March. It was said to equal the January 12th storm, but the Dakotas were still more noted as for having miserable winters. One gentleman suggested avoiding the name Dakota for the new state, as that name was synonymous with howling blizzards, Arctic cold and winter for nine months. True to that reputation, winter was not yet done with the Great Plains. There was plenty of snow still to come that March. At the end of the month, one newspaper noted that a late winter storm was worthy of New York, a reference to the eastern blizzard. It was apparent that in 1888, March not only came in like a lion, it was also going out as one. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Carol Butcher. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. High school productions are getting canceled after parents complain about content. In Ohio, students pushed back and Broadway stood with them. On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Starting at 4 a.m. Central, right here on Prairie Public. We'd like to thank the North Dakota Council on the Arts for supporting arts programming here on Prairie Public. That's it for this Wednesday edition of Main Street. Coming up tomorrow on the show, you've heard of March Madness, and usually it's applied to sports, but also you can winnow down a poetry competition as people from across the state competed in their schools and narrowed down into one state champion for the recent Poetry Out Loud competition. We hear from the winner, along with a special guest, North Dakota native Deb Marquardt, who is currently Iowa's Poet Laureate. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.